Hi, I'm John Moscow. And I'm Amy Halpern Laugh. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Dr. Kim Butler, Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies and Director of the Certificate Program in Africana Studies at Rutgers University, a former president of the Association for the Study of Worldwide African Diaspora. Dr. Butler is author of Freedoms Given, Freedoms Won, as well as numerous articles and book chapters. Welcome, Kim. Hi, well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. What is Africana Studies? Ah, <laughs> Africana Studies is sort of synonymous with Black Studies, but the reason why the name Africana was chosen, you know, well, let me back up a little bit. Black Studies got started as a result of protests in the 1960s, where the Black student movement basically organized to fight for greater inclusion of Black students in universities. Uh, they fought also for inclusion of the study of Black people and people of color in the curriculum. And as a framework for that, they fought for Black studies slash Africana studies. And the name Africana studies refers to sort of the global African community. So it is Africa, and the African diaspora. So it's a little bit broader than just African-American studies based in the United States. It really takes into consideration all the interrelationships with Africa and the diaspora. So it's a little bit different from ethnic studies in that it's a global focus. Well, ethnic studies is you know, just that. It is the study of particular ethnic groups. And in a lot of schools, they consider Black studies as just another of the ethnic groups that are being studied. But in terms of Africana studies as a discipline, the mandate is a little bit broader. Because if you think about it, a lot of times, one of, my, one of the things that I always hear from my students is, why didn't they teach us that? <laughs> we'll talk about some aspect of Black history, and they'll say, wow, they never told us about this. They never told us about him or her. And that's what we're about. We're really interrogating, like, how is knowledge produced? There is a problem if we have systems of education that manage to leave out a whole chunk of the human population. And so we have to, in addition to just studying the Black experience, we have to study the way knowledge is produced. Because if we just do the same things that people have been doing all along, we'll produce the same kind of information. So what we do is figure out, well, what is it that we need to shift so that we're opening up our lens to see a little bit more? And so it, it is more than just the study of Black people. <laughs> it's also that. And there's one more element of it, and this is actually very connected to what you guys do, which is, you know, Blackness is really kind of the product of, I mean, Africa's a huge <laughs> continent, right? We, co we cover many nations, many cultures and languages and everything. What unites us is the history of the growth of capitalism, slavery, colonialism, racism. 
white supremacy. All that stuff winds up defining what it means to be black in the world today. And so we have had to contend with some of the most fundamental systems of hierarchy and oppression in modern history. And so, but yet we survive. And so part of what we get from study of Africana studies is how do people take on systems of oppression that are designed to destroy them? And how do they challenge them? How do they manage to find a way through that they can still somehow do things like create jazz and do things like, you know, the fabulous arts and cultures that we create or the systems of spiritual resistance or any of the other things that Black people have done to, you know, fight against the ways in which, you know, we were designed to just be commodities. So... There's a lot to take from the study of Africana study. And you've also talked about how the history of Black people, as you just sort of mentioned, is so fundamental to the history of capitalism and the history of the modern world and, and how it developed, so that it's not only the study of the effects on black people, but the ways that the, the whole structures of the world have come out of the development of slavery and capitalism. Exactly. I mean, you cannot understand capitalism fully if you do not understand its relationship to the taking of African labor and the taking of indigenous land. You won't have capitalism without that. And as a matter of fact, that is um, the critique that's made by Cedric Robinson in his book, Black Marxism, because he says, you know, the fatal flaw of Marx is that he never really took into account slavery and the enslaved people. He was always looking for, you know, revolt and resistance to come from the proletariat. That's not where it was going to come from. Think about it, you know, and this is another thing that has come up in like the black political scholarship, you know, the political tradition is, that, or the black radical tradition is another way to say it, is that if you really think about it, who had the most to gain from resisting the system? It's the people who were completely enslaved. And so that's where your natural class of resistance was. And Marx never really, really grappled with how fundamental slavery was to capitalism. Kim, often ethnic studies are intended mainly for the particular ethnic group being studied. Should all students take Africana studies? <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. I mean, if, let me put it this way. If you are a student who is First of all, want to understand the society in which you live. I mean, my goodness, look at this year, right? So many people have been wringing their hands about, oh my goodness, why are all these people in the streets? Why is it that we can't seem to get around the corner with these, you know, racial problems? And they're looking to do things like do sensitivity training with police. And it's much deeper than that. So if you really 
if you just want to put a little bow on it and put a little money behind it and get a little ribbon and say, oh, I did something for diversity, then sure, fine, do that. But if you really are about fundamental change, you all had something on your website that said one of the things that y'all are about is how do we dismantle oppression? Well, how can you dismantle a system if you don't truly understand its nature and how it works, its origins? So if you're really about dismantling oppression, you got to go and grapple with that understanding, that fundamental understanding. And the, the thing that's a little bit of a challenge is that we are so used to these little soundbite explanations of everything. I don't have like three bullet points <laughs> that I could give you. I can't sit there and do, you know, Deepak Chopra has all these nice little, little ways of little packaging his little stuff. And I tell my students, I want to teach you all the history of slavery. That I cannot do it in one class. I can't do it in two. It might take us a good three weeks just for you to be at a point where, and I, this is my, my thing too, can anybody explain why was it that people got slaves from Africa? And I always tell my students, you have to give me more than, well, they, the colonists needed slaves, so they went to Africa. Well, you, you, what's the logic there? That just says Africa, I always say Africa is not the 7-Eleven, for slaves, I need a slave, let me go on to Africa. Why, right? And to tell that story is to tell the story of the birth of capitalism from what was feudalism. And you need to bring in there the whole growth of global trade and industrialization and colonial expansion. It's a complicated story. And my, a lot of times people do not carve out the time it takes to really understand it. So they want quick answers. They want to go on NewsHour or Fox News or MSNBC and stand up there and rattle off, oh, this is what's going to fix the problem. It's a problem that, stay, that goes back 500 years. You can't explain a 500-year problem in five minutes. So that actually leads into my next question. I mean, you started to answer it, and it's a huge question, actually is how could high schools do a better job of teaching about the African diaspora? And yes, yes. Go ahead. Wow. <laughs> That's, there's a lot they could do. It's somewhat of a challenge because we tend to teach things in isolation that we're really in conversation. So like we might have a unit on the Middle Ages, and then a unit on the Enlightenment, and then a unit on something else. And the world was very interconnected. So, you know, if we're understanding why it is that so many Africans left the continent and went to other places, there are actual connections to things like the Crusades, things like the great expansion of Islam across North Africa, and all of the history of sugar cultivation. And all of those things are taught 
in very sort of disparate kind of units. So that's a little tough. Um, one easy thing they could do is to understand that, you know, when you're talking about the Black experience in America, it's really the whole hemisphere of the Americas. Even if you were just to contextualize the fact that the number of Africans that came to the United States is only about 5% of the total. I mean, even if students were just to understand that much, that there are a whole lot more Black people in places like Brazil and the Caribbean and Colombia, you know, that is just something in and of itself that many people do not learn. I did not know that there were Black people in Brazil until I was 20 years old in the junior in college. So it just blew my mind. That's helpful. And also they need to understand that that experience did not begin in 1619 with the English and their colony. It began much, much earlier in the 1400s with the Portuguese. And what we have here is built and modeled after what was started there. And, you know, even, listen, I'll give you something. You know, we have the African burial ground in New York City. And there's an interesting thing. If you go there and you look at that plaque of the names of some of the very first Africans, they've got Dutch names and Brazilian names and African names because, and that just speaks to the interconnectedness. The Dutch brought them there when they got defeated in Brazil. You know, all of these connections are, are very hard to talk about when we have an approach to a curriculum that is very, very rigid about the kinds of units that I guess social studies breaks up learning into. And so I wish that there was a little bit more freedom to follow the story the way it really developed. So in addition to the presence of Africans throughout the Western Hemisphere, why do you think that high schools, at least most high schools, I think, teach so little about the Western Hemisphere in general? Um, that it's so that it's so Eurocentric in 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 that perspective. Has that been your experience in terms of the students that you get of what their knowledge is of the Western Hemisphere when they come to you? <laughs> um, that it's Eurocentric. Well, yeah, it's Eurocentric. It's U.S. centric. Um, so why? Why is I mean, and here I'm going back to my high school experience, which was a long time ago. But everything I learned was in terms of the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis Europe, and it was only very, very vague that the U.S. was part of this huge continent that goes all the way down to the tips of Chile. You know. We, we didn't look southward or northward for that matter. We only looked eastward. So is it your sense that that's still the case? Or do you think that high schools are doing a better job of teaching, say, about Brazil or about the history of Central America? <laughs> well, my students, I teach at Rutgers, which is a public university. We tend to get a lot of students from the public school system in New Jersey. Um, I think that they, I, I think that they have a little bit more awareness of 
Latin America, some of the global experience, but I'm not sure that comes from school. I think it comes from our, you know, a much more interconnected way we live now. They're much more likely to run across, you know, Latino people and Asian people and people with different kind of combinations that come across that either culturally or in their neighborhoods. We live in a much more diverse way And I think students, young people, have a lot more access to diversity from social media. I'm not so sure that the schools are truly, truly keeping up with it in their curriculum. I mean, there are little changes. I was blown away when I found a student who had learned about something called the Treaty of Tordesillas <laughs> in one of my classes, because I had never heard of this. It was like right after Columbus landed. Like, you remember they said that Columbus was looking for India and they thought they had found India. So obviously he went back and reported to Spain that he found India. But at the same time, the Portuguese were looking for India. We never talk about the Portuguese. And really, it was the Portuguese that made the blueprint for all the plantation societies, the relationships of slavery, the the use of colonies as imperial expansion, All of that started with the Portuguese. We don't even talk about them. And this particular treaty just sort of divvied up the world. It said everything on the Western side, which is entire Americas would belong to Spain. The whole Eastern side, all of the discoveries in Africa and Europe would belong to Portugal. And that was very fundamental for the the history of our hemisphere. But we don't learn about that. So that's a long way to say. I think they're getting a little better. I think they're talking about, you know, some Black writers. There's a little bit more Black content. But the other piece of this, John, is I think they are teaching to tests. And schools are not going to be able to change unless the tests change or the relationship to testing changes. Can you mention that? often your students lack writing skills. Why is that? Is that connected to teaching to the test? And why is it so important for them to learn to write? Oh my gosh. Well, you know what? It is a form, uh, one of the most brilliant (laughs) inventions of humanity, a way to express your ideas and have conversation across time and space. You can have a conversation with thinkers of, you know, like Descartes and, you know, like the Enlightenment thinkers, you could be like, I disagree with Socrates. You can, if you can write. And if you can read and if you can engage in ideas that way, it's another language. I always, I tell my students, you know, sometimes you might not have been trained to to do like this kind of intellectual writing or any kind of writing, but it's just another language of expression. And I, I just think it, it's really key for people to figure out ways in which they can develop original creative thinking. It's, it's, it's a language of that. I don't think it's the only language, but I think it's a very important one. And, you know, students, I think, are afraid to say, I have an opinion about something. I think one of the things that happens is they think that what they are there to do is to receive some information, memorize it, 
and spit it back out. And sometimes if you have a text, just because you received the text does not mean that this particular person, because somebody, you know, decided to publish that book, makes them the be all and end all. You too have an independent mind. And it is perfectly okay to disagree and engage in conversation and debate if you know how to express an idea, but not only an opinion, to really make an argument saying, look, my opinion is different from yours because this is the evidence I see. And I'm saying this, you know, I'm talking about writing from the point of view of a historian. Obviously, this is different from creative writing. But if they say, you know what, I think this, but it's because of this, you know, A, B, C, D, E. That's why I think this. Let me show it to you. See what you think. If they can do that, they can be such original thinkers. And many of them were never, ever thought to think of themselves in that way. It blows their mind when they think that some of the major theorists that we know of began writing theory in their 20s when they were the same age as my students. They'll, you know, they think that that's all purview of real old people. It was like, no, that could be you. And, and, to, and to see them begin to do that, it makes a person powerful. And it's not just for academics. It's just to be able to, you know, that's the difference between like a real debate, an informed debate, and just, I think this, and I feel this, and you feel that, and, and look, at, look at the state of our political debates today. I feel this, you feel that, and it's like nobody's willing to look at anybody else's evidence. They, they, everybody say evidence is suspect, but that's because, you know, you all, you all are not applying any kind of standards of corroboration, <laughs> things like that. So you, you get a whole lot of heat, but not real exchange of ideas. So how does the focus on teaching to the test relate to this? What do you find in terms of the students coming to you? What, what impact has oh my that gosh. had? It is so sad. I wish it's like almost like it <laughs> so just first of all, there's uh an orientation towards passive learning. That's one thing I see. And it's so funny if I say something is going to be on the test, everybody immediately perks up and starts writing madly. And if I don't say that, they just kind of like let it wash over them. You know, maybe they get it, maybe they don't. Now, I mean, I'm, of course, I'm talking in big generalities. Sure. But I grew up in experimental education. I'm a child of the beautiful, you know, they, they don't never really had a name for people who grew up in the 70s. But it was sort of, sort of I, I think the only thing they called us was the me generation. I guess every generation is a me generation. But, but in the 70s, it was great because when I went to school, it was like right after all of the, the, the new thinking of the 60s, right? All the hippies and, and thinking, you know, break down everything, change everything. And I was such a beneficiary of that. Like my high school was founded in 1969. It was like all hippies. And they were like, we're not doing anything traditionally. And they really gave a lot of alternatives to testing. I went to a college that had no majors. 
papers, no grades, you know, no like formal testing. And it was beautiful. And I really wish students would have at least some space. I understand tests are necessary, but I really wish they would have some space to just learn for learning's sake. Let their minds just go where they want to go and just take away all the extra baggage we put on the learning process. And I really try to bring back to my students just some genuine excitement and joy about learning something new and working out your brains and, you know, taking yourself and imagining different things, letting the conversation go in, in other directions. I really wish, you know, we could open that up. Actually, one other thing I'll say to you, I just got an email at work today saying students are stressed out <laughs> because since we're online, a lot of professors are thinking, well, the only way we can know that they're not cheating and whatnot is give them all these tests and assignments and tests and this and that and online assessments and they're driving the poor students crazy. And, I th and they've even asked professors to back off a little bit. And I had already figured that this semester was gonna be a wash. So I said, you know what, we're going to just kind of take it easy and have some sessions that is just, you don't have to read, we're just going to come in, discuss something, watch something, just take a little break. And I think the students really appreciate that. And I wish that, that they could have a little bit more opportunity to just have some no stakes engagement with something. Yeah. John Dewey saw participation in, in a democratic society as a principal purpose of education. Clearly, most of the things that we grapple with as citizens don't have easy answers. Does teaching to the test undermine that as well? Huh. I think that to the extent that it keeps people from just sort of like a freer engagement with new ideas and less, you know, just just freedom to, to just move around with your ideas and change your mind about things and whatnot. I, I just think that, I, I just don't see how teaching to the test really encourages that kind of imaginative thinking and just sort of the free flow, because that's where the new stuff comes, right? It's not just being able to repeat what they're expecting you to say. It's those surprises. It's those things like, oh, I never would have thought about that. But if you don't allow that to be an answer, and certainly, you know, it's one thing if a teacher is grading it. It's another thing if it's a scantron that can't even take into account like the little side note that a student might want to express you know where's the where's the the wiggle room for the for the new ideas you know that's just turning out cogs so and by the way you mentioned john dewey's idea that was the name of my high school it was john dewey high school so it was truly in that spirit so obviously there's a tension between education as a liberating experience and an exciting experience in the sense that you've been talking about what you were able to be exposed to and the focus on education as workforce development and the means of getting a job um 
how do you see that playing out in terms of the students that you're working with? A hundred percent. I mean, that's real. I think students are really panicked right now about how they're going to make a living. They come to school really with a vocational objective. I am investing all of this money. It's like the four years of my life and however many years they're going to be in debt for that experience, right? They have to take that seriously. And so you don't want to go to, to, to college and come out in debt with no prospect for a job. So many come in really desperate to have some kind of employment that they can get from this. So that's real. That's real. I think that it would help them to understand that there are many qualities and skills that you can gain from a liberal arts education that would help you in today's economy. But I think students need to be equipped with the language so that they could translate that. Um, what I tell my students in Af like Africana studies, nobody comes to Africana studies, almost intentionally, almost everybody who's in Africana studies comes by accident because there is no job in Africana studies. And in fact, ever since our foundation in the 1960s, it's always been a thing where both students and their families always believed that that was like a little side something you take because they want those kids to be able to get jobs. So what I tell them now is that because Africana does teach you to think outside of the box, teach you to find things that you might not have seen using conventional methods, that's actually a great skill set for developing your own job, developing your own way in the world, which is what increasingly a lot of young people are having to do as our, you know, sort of corporate base tends, is, is somewhat collapsing and, and those jobs are shrinking. And I think that not only in, in my discipline, but in a lot of other disciplines that are like English and things like that, literature, uh, philosophy even, if we can help students understand what they can take from that and translate that into a life skill, I think that's a good medium. I mean, we're never going to get people to just say, you know what, I just love to study medieval art and that's what I want to do the whole time I'm in college. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's going to be hard. I mean, how many curatorial jobs are there out there? But anyway, so that, that's what I think we can try to help them do because it is hard out there and we have to be real. Nobody's going to live, you know, without having some way to make a dollar. And, and they have to do that. That You know, we got working class kids coming through. So I want them to be able to do it. But again, their ability to be creative and say, you know what, I can see all of that skills we were just talking about, about writing that you had asked about, Amy. That comes into being able to write a business plan or a proposal. Maybe you have some funders that might want to support your ideas or you need to put it on a website. How do you express your, what the beautiful, wonderful things in your head? You've got to be able to communicate them. So that's the kind of way I'm trying to think about how we can help this generation of students. 
Yeah, it's so different from, for example, when I was in college. Now, I think that there is perhaps also an equity issue here. Um, I felt that I needed an undergraduate degree just so that I could have one either to go into a career or to go on to graduate school. But the content of what I'd studied didn't have to be vocational. I think that was true of quite a few people in that generation, in my generation. Now I see a lot more kids sort of scrambling to, to actually use college as vocational school. And yeah. I'm not sure there's not an ethical issue there. It, it is, it is, you know, and I know that this is the case because we do something. I'm actually, I've just, I've signed up to represent my department. We have something called the majors fair. So incoming students, it used to be in person, right? We, and this is when you really see it. Imagine all these students coming for a big day and they've got all these tables set up around a gigantic room. And they have like a big table for like pre-med and a table for accounting and labor relations and, 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 and social services and what. Those tables are packed. They are flooded. The business school is like so, you know, mobbed. <laughs> They've got like all this swag that they give out and everything. All the students run to those things. And I sat one day with the Latino studies <laughs> representative and the two of us sat there for four hours and not a single student came to stop by to pick up our little flyers because that's not what they're going for. So, you know, we are sort of that point of putting out young people into the workforce now. and. Um, that, that is what's happening with liberal arts education. That is the reality. I wish that, I'm sorry, I mean, the, the, th the ethics issue I see in a lot of these schools is how, how the liberal arts curriculum is so devalued. It's become very corporate. We are putting tons of money into these executive positions this whole teaching to the test thing there's this whole industry as you all well know about people who are assessing the tests and designing the tests and so all this corporate money is going to these executives right then you have don't you know get started on the whole athletics as business side in the big universities there's also this whole question of the labs that are developing you know we're basically serving industries like pharmaceuticals to develop patented drugs and things like that. So in that whole big mix, a little department of literature <laughs> is considered like, oh, a little waste. To, what? You know, I mean, I've had a dean sit there and tell me, we don't even know really. Why do y'all exist? Remind oh, us. <laughs> you, you expect the movement for black lives to have a long-term impact on educational institutions? Huh. I hope it has a long-term impact on the students, uh, the young people. And I, I think one of the things that has made me really encouraged about this particular movement is that there is a shift 
in looking at individual acts of racist behavior to instead looking at systemic problems. Because that's really where change can come and that's really what we have to focus on. Individuals are gonna act however they act, but it is the systems that we need to really address. Because, you know, in, in some ways, you know, who cares what you feel about me as long as the system is not structured against me. I'll deal with you one-on-one -on -one as a person, but don't make the system such that I cannot enter certain spaces. I cannot take certain types of positions or influence certain types of policy decisions, right? We need to be able to have a lot more people sitting around important tables. And if they can begin to shift that systemic problem then I think we're doing something. I think in terms of right now, the people responding to it, it seems like everybody, like all these big corporate entities are putting out money. That, oh yeah, we are for Black Lives and you know, make nice ads and things like that. And they're not really trying to change anything. But if the people understand that, uh-uh, we're not going to accept this window dressing anymore. We want real change, then I will feel <laughs> like we're getting somewhere. Thank you so much, Dr. Kim Butler of Rutgers University. Thank you guys. You know, you all, I have to say, first of all, y'all are doing absolutely fabulous work. We don't think enough about education um, and how we are educating. And as you say, the ethics involved in the work of educating. It is so vitally important. It's just another example of the ways in which we value certain things in our society. And what could, I mean, education is so vitally important. We are preparing an entire generation. Whatever we do with them is gonna shape the world that is to come. And this is absolutely precious. We think about a brain surgeon, right? What is a brain surgeon? A brain surgeon has your brain in their hands. And we say, oh my gosh, this is so precious. This person should be paid thousands and thousands of dollars and held up on high. We hold brains in our hands. Wow. We have to stop and think about that. That is so true. And, and thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or a review because it helps other people to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easier to use in workshops and classes. And we work with consultants to offer customized social-emotional learning programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City area. You can contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. And our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week.